This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 89. My guest this week is Daniel Lazarin, whose debut collection of short stories, Backtalk, is out now. Her fiction can be found in the Southern Review, Colorado Review, Indiana Review, Glimmer Train, Vibe Chapters, Boston Review, and elsewhere. She's a graduate of Oberlin College's creative writing program and received her MFA from the University of Michigan. There, her stories and essays won Hopwood Awards. She's received grants from the New York Foundation for the Arts and the Northern Manhattan Arts Alliance. She currently lives in her native New York, where she's raising her daughters and is currently working on a novel. I've never had, I don't think, such a great setup for an episode as I did on last week's episode where Mary Laura Philpott shared books that she is reading and loving at the moment. And of course, Backtalk was on the list. And I was delighted to talk about how much I loved it last week. And now you get to follow that amazing intro up with a discussion with Danielle herself about her incredible book. So I know you're really going to enjoy this episode. If you listened to Mary Laura's advice last week and ran out and snatched the book up and started reading it, you're going to be especially happy to hear from her right away. And if not, I'm sure you're going to snatch up the book after listening to this conversation, which I tremendously enjoyed. So here we go with Daniel Lazarin. Hey there, just a quick reminder before we get into the episode that submissions are currently open for the I Wrote It Anyway anthology. You can learn more about the anthology itself and how to submit your piece for consideration in the collection at IWroteItAnyway.com. All right, now let's get on with the show. Hey, Danielle, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on because we don't get to talk about short stories as often as we get to talk about novels. And I think I love short stories. I mean, I think about careers that were launched with short stories like Jhumpa Lahiri and, you know, that that just took off. And it seems to be unusual to find them nowadays. And I'm, I'm wondering about your experience writing a story and putting stories out into the world and how that's feeling for you in this in this time period? I'm also a fan of of having stories out in the world. Uh, Somebody was telling me the other day that they read the stories in between hiding out from their child in the bathroom. (laughs) They needed like a space. They were trying to get the kid to do something. And I was like, this is the perfect advertisement. She's like, I read them one at a time that way. Um, And uh, I I love that. I was like, yes, so much harder with a novel where you would be interrupted. Um, It's, it's really interesting to put a collection of stories together for many reasons. I mean, one is that it, you know, for me personally, it represents a really long period um, in my life um, where I've done other things in between, including, you know, trying some novels that didn't quite make it through. Um, so there's just, you know, like that, the length of time that it takes. But what's lovely about stories is you get to like, work them over and over again, and then they're done in you know, in a, in a smaller time frame, And then you do, as you said, like put them out in the world. Um, so there's like, 
these little pauses when you're putting together a book of stories where you can, you can really celebrate a story for what it is and the work that you've put into it. Um, and then kind of put it aside for a little while. So that's been like a really fun and interesting experience to like, look back on all that time in my life and see how they fit together. Um, and how they came together eventually, even though a lot of them were started a really long time ago. Yeah, I think that's wonderful because, you know, looking at the novel process, you're sort of inside a cave doing it for such a long time and you don't get to sort of, people are always like, well, what are you doing in there? Right. <laughs> you know, what's going on in there? And you're like, you just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. It's going to take a little while. Yeah, we're a minute's like months and months and months. Months yeah. and years. And yeah. is anything, and everyone's like, is anything really going on in there? Yeah. With, with stories, you can say, well, here's one. Here you go. I'm yeah. going to go back in and you can see a little bit about what I'm working on. Yeah. It also gives you, I think one of the things it's interesting because you know, I, I have an MFA and I actually have an undergrad degree in creative writing too. I'm, um, uh, I always like to joke, like people are like, Oh, like creative writing is not a practical degree. And I was like, yes, it is. Um, I'm still doing it. I did it twice. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trained on stories and then so many people are then, told once they leave those programs that they like need to write a novel, which is, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but, um, they're, they're very different skills, but at the same time, one of the things that's like so lovely and important about stories is that they allow you to do all this experimenting. Whereas in a novel, like you said, you know, you're in this cave and you're in that cave with whatever point of view, whatever characters you've chosen, whatever plot. And sometimes you have to get through all of that before you decide, it's not working or I need to change. It's just a much larger scale. But stories allow you to play with voice um, and with time frame and all these things. And you get to just do a lot of those. And I think that's why um, MFA programs and workshops are great because they force you to try all those things that hopefully down the line will help you see your strengths and weaknesses and, and also your abilities, what you, what you are able to play with and what you can do. No, it's true. And it is fascinating to me because this is sort of true across the board with MFA programs, it seems, is that you work on stories there, but then most people seem to want to write novels later. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if you've been through an MFA program and, and I loved, I went to Michigan um, and I loved it. It was great. Um, and they were really great about being super practical with us. Um, they were protective of us in terms of letting like agents and editors and all that stuff in. Um, and once people came in, they would always kind of pull us aside and be like, they're going to say this, but like, you know, you have to write what you want to write. Um, and we were really encouraged to not seek agents until we, we knew what our actual project was. Mm. Um, but you know, it was also always told to us that like, if you have a story collection, have a novel idea in your back pocket, because the world of writing and the world of publishing are, you know, two different things. Mm. Um, and you have to, you have to work on a project that's true to you. But yeah, I mean, one of the things I've heard most of all, um, which at first was felt a little like a wound and now feels like a victory was like, wow, like you sold a short story collection, like nobody buys stories. Um, which is interesting. I was like, I, you know, but it happened and it does happen. Um, and you know, there, there are different expectations for stories than for novels, but, uh, yeah, you're not, 
particularly told that they're a viable um, product. I hate to call them a product, but yeah, we were always told to have novels somewhere hidden. And some people don't want to write novels. And some people I think actually always want to write novels. And then they're like stuck in the story structure and they feel really free once they get out of it. I think we see a lot of that too. Um, people who like write an entire story collection in an MFA program and then never want to touch it again. Um, I think maybe, maybe that's a little harder. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating to me. I mean, this seems to happen across academia. It's not just in MFAs. It's like, we're going to train you to do this one thing, but once you get out into the world, you're going to have to do this other thing. But right. <laughs> but we're not really, we don't, we're not set up to do that. I'm, I, I mean, I, it's been 10 years since I've been in an MFA program. My impression is that they're getting a little bit more, um, they're figuring out ways to work novels into um, their structure. I think a couple of programs are are more aware of that, which is great. Yeah, it does seem to make sense to me, though. I don't understand why it would be. I mean, I know that it's you know been said, and I've certainly seen people have this experience. But that selling a short story collection, when like you said, they're so much easier to read and consume in our current life and our lifestyle. It's like, it's so nice. I was in, as in reading your book, I was like, okay, I can have a complete experience of an entire narrative with a group of characters and then go to bed. And then I can wake up and read one, you know, and it's like, you can have these moments throughout your day. It seems so ideal in the way that we're used to consuming articles or things. And we want the whole thing really quickly. It seems perfect for the modern reader, but yeah, I, I like that you're, um, comparing it to like the way that we consume these other media. Cause like the thing that I hear a lot about short stories is like, Oh, well short stories and like short shorts. And I, I write some stuff that's like pretty short past few years. I've come back to that a little bit. Um, you know, like, well, well people get into them because our attention spans are short. And it's like, it's not exactly that. I don't think that's what it is. I think if anything, what's difficult about stories is their, they are so intense <laughs> and they're, and they're tiny. And I think this, the more compressed something is the harder or more intimidating it is sometimes for people to get into. I mean, if you look at like poetry, people are so intimidated by poetry and, you know, like the words to page ratio is like, is, is pretty small there. Um, I think, th- I think it's daunting for readers, um, to think like, Oh, I have to re-enter an experience every time. Um, I mean, I'm a writer. I like like suffering and like, and, like <laughs> hard things. So I'm like, oh, like you know. But sometimes, like when you read something, it, it can be emotionally draining. You invest, and maybe you know, um, maybe that's just a lot for people. Um, I I understand the feeling, and I have it too. Or sometimes you want to read a novel where you're like, I want to be like in this world, and I want to be absorbed in this world for you know, however long it takes me to read the book and just like really be sucked in. I understand that. Um, but yeah, of course I wish people would like see the merit in stories. And like, I also always say like, you have a story collection, you don't like the story you're in, you can like leave, you can turn the page and go to a different story because hopefully a good story collection has variation in it. Um, and has different stories that might speak to you and you don't, you don't need to read every page of it. (gasps) Scandal. I know it's very scandalous, but <laughs> it's true. But I think it's, yeah, I mean, it is, you get to experience a lot of things, but it's true. You do sort of lift off into a story and then you land at the end and then you turn the page and then there's a new lift off. Yeah. And 
yeah, I mean, yes, sometimes you do read a novel because you want to just completely escape where you are in that moment. But we present stories today on the show as an alternative for those of you who feel like you have no time and really want to read some good stories. Well, let's talk about your stories because I think from the standpoint of of a lot of people listening, the, the process of writing stories, I think is something that they're, they're interested in along with writing novels. And I think the process of, of writing, you know, just because like with a novel, you know who you're writing about for a long time. So there's a difference in writing stories is the, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a difference in writing stories from the point of view of, of the writer and you're having to come up with new situations. I mean, you're responsible for more detail and, and more, and plus the, the pressure of every sentence, you know, being so precious in a story. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the process of, of dreaming up these stories and a little bit more about where they came from, because I think it's really fascinating. You've talked a little bit about where it came from, but I want them to hear it from you. Yeah. Um, the stories are, like I said, they were written over a long period of time, but I think of them as being written in a few chunks of time. Like, um, would say about half of them are from the early 2000s till I know it's going to freak people out. Um, <laughs> I used to teach and I would bring in like these stacks of my drafts for my students and be like, you know, it would be like 15 drafts of a story. And I was like, and it isn't done. And I was like, so excited to show them and they were just completely horrified, but um, all pale, like, <laughs> Oh God, it never I, ends. I, I quit. And I was like, yeah, I know. Um, so yeah, <laughs> from like the early 2000s through graduate school and I finished Michigan in 2007. Um, and so there were those stories and then, um, I was in Michigan for a little bit after school. I had a child, um, which definitely threw things off for a little bit. And then um, also because I had a child, I moved back home to New York um, to be closer to family and to kind of settle in. And then once I moved back to New York and I had this like very small, lovely, but quite frankly, babies are pretty boring um, <laughs> a person in my life, I started to gain Steam on like these on these other stories, and I was in theory working on a novel that was not working. Um, so I kept kind of writing these stories as like little kind of cheats um, on that novel. Um, and I think you know that you know having a kid and moving back to New York and then working on something I wasn't really into really helped me write those that second wave of stories. Um, I was at just such a different point in my life. And so I just had, I had new experiences to, to mine. Um, and also like when it feels like you're not working, I feel like that's a way that I often trick myself into getting stuff done. I've written a lot of projects by pretending that I'm not working on them. Um, (laughs) I don't know how you can like will yourself into doing that, but like work on something and then always be taking notes on that other thing. You're like, I shouldn't work on that now. Uh, so it was interesting once I like wrote that second wave of stories, I think because I did feel like older and I, and I had this child and I always joke that like, you know, children are like nothing like the best reminder of like, you're slowly marching toward death. (laughs) (laughs) I used to think like, Oh, I'll like, I'll write a book and then I'll like have kids and do this. And it's like, no, like it's all happening now nobody is like calling me, like begging me for a collection of short stories. I need to just get on it. Um, 
So that was a really swift kick in the pants, a really bad reason to have children. Um, you know, like don't, don't have kids to like motivate your writing. But for me, it was really helpful to kind of like get myself into more um, disciplined habits that I didn't really have in my earlier life. Um, so I think I was just like writing more consistently and I was writing with a better focus than I think I did in the, in my early days of writing. Um, some of that's life experience and some of that is just like, um, having less time and then using my time better. Um, so yeah, a lot of those second wave of stories and I don't, I don't think that many people would be able to tell which stories are earlier and which ones are later. I know. I'm not um, trying to figure it yeah. out in my head. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and to, also to be fair, a lot of the, um, the early stories like hide and seek was the story that was called the women and the children. That was my MFA application story. That story began, I started writing that story in like 2004, 2003. Um, that story was so different and went through so many different revisions and wasn't in the collection for a while. And then um, it was one of the last, I think it might've actually been the last story I revised. So that story's had a really long life. Um, and I just needed that time to be able to come back into that story and understand what I wanted it to be about, which is also the beauty of putting a collection together. Um, you can put things aside and, and then decide what they are or um, what you want them to be based on what the other stories around them are. Like I, I like the way in a story collection, like in strong ones, the stories speak to one another and help you see things in your work that you maybe didn't realize you were putting in there. Um, yeah. Did any of them change as a result of the stories they were surrounded by? Did you end up editing? Cause you're like, Oh, because this one is in here. I want, I want this to worry. I see something differently than I did before. Yeah. I mean, um, a few stories, I mean, not even necessarily changed so much, but like, for instance, the holographic soul was a story that was my first publication. I wrote that while I was in Michigan. Um, and it's about, uh, two sisters who are very close and they, um, uh, well, one of them believes that they have psychic powers. Kind of, yeah. really. There's I a trick. that one. <laughs> There's I a keep trick. trying to figure out the trick. I was like, Oh, maybe. it's really funny. Cause when I wrote that story in workshop at, uh, Michigan, I can't, re- I can't remember. It was like very difficult for me to actually reveal the trick. It's something my sister and I used to do. I think I did eventually tell them, but I debated it because it was so ingrained in my like little girl, part of my brain is like, don't tell them the trick. Don't tell them the trick. Just pretend that you're psychic. Um, I told my daughter it actually a couple of weeks ago. I don't know how it came up, but, um, well now yeah, she's going to carry on the tradition. Exactly. Maybe that could be like a special reader prize. Like, I don't know. <laughs> If you buy five copies of my book, I will tell you the psychic trick. You can amaze your friends and family. Um, but, you know, that that story, when I wrote it, was so much about the relationship between um, the sisters. Um, but the other part of that story is that their mother um, used to be a photojournalist and basically had stopped doing her work because it required travel and sometimes, you know, risky situations, but really long periods away from home and had scaled back her life, um, to have children and, and be home with them. And, uh, you know, now did other kinds of photography work. Um, and in returning to that story, I realized it was as much about like that mother (laughs) as it was about those, 
those girls. Um, and I think I couldn't have gotten there without obviously having become a mother myself, but also in writing other stories that were more deliberately about motherhood. Um, there's a story called looking for a thief. That's like very much, um, about the experience of motherhood and, and having children and like, you know, what the quote unquote dangers are about, um, living, living a life as a, as a parent, um, that, that story was half finished in Michigan. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, so yeah, I think those earlier things that I had seeds for, and I didn't really know what direction to take them in, um, coming more into my own as a person helped me return to the material and see an angle on it. Um, that was probably there. I just wasn't quite old enough, um, to draw it out. And then there's also, there's two stories that are connected that are characters that are 20 years apart. Um, there's a story called Spider Legs. Um, and it focuses on a set of uh, half siblings. They're, um, oh, sorry, no, wait, they're not half siblings. Oh, see, I'm getting my characters all mixed up. They, um, they maybe feel that way. They do, Yes. Um, they have a, a strained rela relationship to say the least. There's two older siblings that are very close, always gotten into trouble. And then there's the younger, um, child who feels a little out of it. Their parents are divorced. They visit their mother in Paris. So there's those, those characters. And then I, um, for years, there's like a, there's a throwaway line, not a throwaway line, but there's a line in there about, um, how the father who's since remarried and has a little girl, um, has a second chance family, um, so it's not far away because I was actually always quite charmed by that line that I wrote. And um, then that became a whole other story. Um, I just couldn't let go of that idea of somebody having the second chance at life and then like what, what would happen. Um, the, you know, the story is told, Spider Legs is told from the perspective of Caitlin, who is 17. And so she sees it as like, oh, this is, you know, the family he's given us up for. Um, and then the, the story, which is called Second Chance Family, is told by Hope, who's the little girl in that first uh, story. So she's also a daughter, and she feels like her family isn't enough as well. Um, so those stories, I feel like, do a really nice job of bookending uh, those, that family and the lives of that family and kind of following up on that question. A lot of the, I, that brings me to something I wanted to ask you about, which is that a lot of the buzz around this collection of stories is around the way you've chosen to portray women's experience. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to, to sort of read some of that buzz and then read the stories. And to me, I thought, but they feel so natural to me. <laughs> like it didn't feel like, oh, I'm getting hit over the head with, oh my God, this is, this is a totally different perspective. I felt like, yes, this is how we actually think. Right. Um, and it was, it was one of those reactions sort of like, this is a weird parallel, but like seeing Wonder Woman and when she's like, well, why can't I go in the meeting, you know, and, and how idiotic a lot of the attitudes that we're pushed up against. And then as soon as we, we are presented with something that realizes like, oh yeah, this is actually what we have to do. And I'm wondering how, how much of that, I mean, you have talked about, like, I was thinking about these things very consciously as I wrote it, but I'm wondering how much was just you writing, like, well, this is how the character actually feels, and I'm not going to censor it. Yeah, I mean, it's been, um, I've had kind of the same reaction in a way that I'm like, I'm delighted that um, 
people think the stories are like pushing boundaries. Um, I like, I mean, I've always, I've always written realistic stories. So it's like, and stories that have been just described as quiet, which used to bother me and now doesn't at all. (laughs) Um, because like they're they're not you know they're not big stories and I don't I don't think anybody will come to them thinking that they are but like you said it's like to me I was just writing what I knew from my own experiences and what I know from the women who are around me um I do think there's like a little bit you know in writing and in talking about why it is people are having the reaction that this is like um a little bit, I don't, I can't even say like radical or whatever that, or that it pushes boundaries. It's because I think a lot of these conversations are ones that women have with one another and behind closed doors. And I don't think it's because, I mean, I think it's for a few reasons. One is that we need more stories of women out in the world. Um, there are certainly a lot of them that have been amazing. Um, but they're often marginalized for various reasons, you know, um, they're not mainstream. I mean, like all this stuff that's been happening with, um, the me too movement and in like uncovering all these industries, Mm -hmm. um, where just harassment and grossness is rampant. I mean, I, like, I think we all knew this, but, you know, I had this moment a couple of weeks ago where I turned to my husband and I was like, you know, and like all these all these narratives that we've always been fed, which have always annoyed me, like they've all been written by these men (laughs) and they've all been controlled by them. Um, You know, like the story of like what a woman is like as a love interest or as a mother. I mean, I would say like, all you need to know about like what the world thinks of women in 2018 is like, look at a commercial for a cleaning product. There's like still a woman who's like wearing heels, like happily sweeping up a mess of a child. It's, nuts. Like, I think we haven't come as far as we think we have in terms of like a large narrative. And I think that's why my stories seem to like undermine that idea to, to some people, even though I think when, particularly when women read them, I think they'll recognize them as like, yes, this is like what lives are like. Um, but there's nothing particularly, um, large about the actions that these women take. And, Um, I've been thinking a lot about how, if anything, what a lot of the women do is like internalize these feelings, which is something that, you know, I do. And I think that is a common thing for women to do is to like think something or feel it and not act on it. Um, A lot of times because we're not safe to do that um, or because the attention we get from acting on something just causes too much trouble. Yeah, I think it's. I think, I don't know. I think a lot of things, I mean, there's in, especially what you were saying about the narratives controlled by men. I mean, I think, you know, there, there's almost this dichotomy that's happened in entertainment and in books and less so in books, I think, but there's more room for subtlety there, but particularly in entertainment where you're like, these are the types of women that are available and yeah. and the one that really killed me, I can't remember which interview, I wish I could remember which one it was, but it was an actress that, well-known, who was told she was too old to play the love interest of somebody who was about the same age as her. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's that kind of thing where you're just like, really? Um, yeah. Really? I don't know. And even, yeah, even if like the 
if the women who play those roles are resisting it, you don't see it. What we get is the product. Um, like, you know, there's just like, like little things where, um, like what, you know, the, the story called floor plans. Yeah. That's um, what I was thinking about. Actually, yeah. There's, you know, two things I wanted to write about in that story. Um, I mean, one was divorce. I mean, to be really forthcoming that <laughs> the story was, it's like a very, it's, I think my most New York story. I mean, I, I had neighbors down the hall and I kind of like watched, um, like I watched them splitting up. Not that I knew this for sure, but I could just tell by what was going on with the real estate. And I was like, oh, that apartment's going to go on the market. So it started in this really like kind of um, just kind of human curiosity place. Um, but then I just started thinking about, um, you know, what it's like to go through a divorce. I, I have not gone through one myself. I have a number of friends who have um, with varying experiences. Um, but so I wanted to write about that experience, which is just always a shitty experience, no matter how it happens. Um, and I also wanted to write, well, actually there's three things in there. Um, there's also, um, well, I won't give that third thing away, but there's, you know, one of the the things that's between that couple, Robin and Lev is that, um, they both decided they don't want kids. And I got a lot of pushback from, uh, from people on that when I was, um, writing and revising that story. Like, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> um, and it was interesting to me because a lot of this, all, all my readers are women. Um, and to get that pushback from women who are thinkers and who are feminists, like, and obviously some of it was just that I was not making that super clear on the page. Um, and I needed to work on that, but that we're all like taught to question that really basic thing. Like, are you sure that he doesn't want kids? Are you sure that she doesn't want kids? Is this really how it is? Um, that's such a small thing. I know plenty of people who don't want kids. Um, it shouldn't be that scandalous, but somehow it becomes this like big sticking point for people. Um, how difficult it is to accept that tiny little turn from what we see as normal. Um, when if, most of us look around, there are women all around us who don't want children or don't want to get married. And that's just the start of it. That's like a very heteronormative place to even begin to talk about um, pushing the boundaries of these narratives. Yeah, it's fascinating because that's true. We see that everywhere. Um, and But we're sort of trained to not expect to see it in mm -hmm. stories. Like, oh, well, how are you going to... I mean, even in having conversations like as I'm working on books, you know, and with other writers. And it's like, well, how can you amp up the tension a little bit? It's like, oh, it would be so much more poignant if she had always wanted children and now it was too right. late and he didn't want them or, you know, or some right. sort of narrative that you're expecting rather than, you know, actually let's maybe do the story like real people would. Mm -hmm. was or something like, that felt very... It's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It felt very reassuring to read that. I'm like, oh yeah, like this isn't like narrative construction. Nobody can see me doing air quotes, but you know, of like the list of things you have to use to amp up the tension. It's like, no, we're actually going to do it like real people do it. And there will be plenty of drama in that alone. Yeah. I get asked a lot about the, um, like the, the mothers in my stories. Um, and it's funny because like so many of them I wrote before I was a mother. Um, I think my mother is also like very funny and sarcastic. Um, and 
it's funny looking through, I was like, oh, I stole a bunch of lines from her. Like there's a, <laughs> the first story, there's a line where she, like the mother who unfortunately in the, in the um, first story has passed away, like wants to pinch the girl. My mother used to do that to us all the time. Um, I think this is just like part of my family history. <laughs> like humor is like a kind of, a certain kind of darkness and sarcasm um, that's like quite loving. But, you know, for me, it was like super important to write mothers who like were very unapologetic about just like being actual people rather than um like you said like the narrative expects you know like wants us to just be like oh well they're mothers so they're like saintly and they like love their children above all else whereas like i you know most of the mothers in my stories are like looking for a back door um just because their kids are kids and like that's sometimes how it is um so it was important for me to infuse that into those stories in particular. And then, yeah, like to kind of get those little, those little things in there that I don't think I thought about that much when I was drafting the stories, but definitely in like revision, I was much more aware that that was something that I wanted my collection to do was to kind of poke a little bit, um, maybe poke holes in that like commonly accepted narrative of like what a mother should be or what a woman should be. Well, I think it's great encouragement for anyone listening who's writing and feels like they have to do something a certain way, even if they feel like the way the book is talking to them is that it would go a different way. So yeah. don't give up on it is what yeah. I would say. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, you get like, um, when I was in graduate school, I feel like I got a lot of like, oh my God, is this woman about to walk into danger? And I would get that a lot. And I was like, she's not walking into danger. She's doing whatever. And um, I would think like, oh, that's just what people want the story to be. They think a woman's going to get murdered or whatever. When I <laughs> but, you know, you also have to be aware that sometimes it is that your um, that your writing is not quite making that clear. So I think sometimes when you get feedback from people, like the instinct is to be like, well, that's not working. So check it. But for me, it was always like, that's not working. And I would be like, F you, like that has to work. And, and I would make sure to keep it in and make sure that it worked. Um, I think sometimes when we get a lot of feedback, our tendency is to like, be so afraid about the fact that we're told that it's not quite there, that we just like scrap it. Whereas it also can highlight the things that are really important to make work. And so if it's bothering a lot of people, that's probably a, a sign that like you should look into that um, and maybe use it in a way that like will eventually work to the effect that you want it to. Yeah. And I find that also if people in a critique situation get really fired up, it's because they care. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're like, could you read this? And they're like, oh my God, but this part is not working for me. It, right. It means, I mean, if people don't care, they're like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. They don't even notice. And you're like, what about that line? You know, this moment that you think is so important and nobody even um, notices it. Yeah. It's also like, it's such a, um, for me, it was just such a litmus test of like what, what mattered to me in the, in the stories. Um, it took me a while to develop that, like to not just like literally listen to what people's suggestions were, but to like where their attention was drawn and then think like, well, do I want the story to draw so much attention to it? Sometimes it's just like, oh, that's too much attention on this thing that actually doesn't matter as much. So maybe like that does need to come out or be like, have, you know, the dial turned down a little bit. Oh, that's great. 
I love that thought that you're just like, okay, I'm going to watch. It's like, it reminds me of those things where, you know, you can look at a website and I think they have those things that show like where your eyeball goes. I think they can do that. I think they're doing it all the time. I don't know. Maybe I'm just paranoid. Yeah. Idea of like, okay, you line up a thing so that they know where your eye goes so that they know they want to put things in that place because you're naturally going to look there. And it's sort of the same way with the story. Like, oh, if you're really paying attention to that character, maybe I should, you know, get them a little bit less technicolor so that where I want you to look. Yes. Yeah. So it's, I think that's, I don't know. There, there's so many lines in there that stuck out to me. The one I think that stuck with me because you've done so well with, in some of the stories, this sort of adolescent or teenage girl perspective, which I, 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 you know, I challenge a woman listening who was a teenager once, which we all were not to have strong feelings from that period of her life. Oh yeah. But the, the one where I believe his name was George he puts mm-hmm. his cell phone number into her phone and just says, mm-hmm. you'll call. I was so mm-hmm. incensed. Um, at, and then, you know, they do get together later. So you're, you have to assume she did call. And I'm like, oh, don't call, girl. Don't. <laughs> That's funny because I always think of him as such a nice boy. But he I, is later. I'm like, oh. <laughs> he is. And, and I, yeah. I'm just, that was surprising to me too. I was like waiting for, that was the thing that I loved about these stories is you're, you're sort of in some ways you see your own conditioning. Like you mm-hmm. see what, what the situation sets up, like the couple getting divorced and, and you're sort of expecting it to be this sort of bloodbath, you know, and, and to see people have sort of an adult way of handling things is more fascinating to watch because I think the other alternative we could all write ourselves yeah. I mean, um, I, I love that idea that you like see your own conditioning. I mean, writing these stories taught me about like so much of my own conditioning, um, you know, and starting to talk about them, like, you know, like the phrase domestic or quiet used to make me so angry. Um, and I think it's, I think it's still like, it doesn't make me angry to have my stories called domestic because I've started to think about it more clearly. Um, but it makes me angry that so many people think domestic stories don't matter, uh, that that's a way of, of dismissing a story. Um, right. When for me, it just, um, for me, it's just like, it's the, it's the space that a story happens in. And it's the space that like lots of lives, not only women's lives, like everybody has a place they go to at the end of the day. Everybody has family, whether you are close to them or not, whether they're involved in your life. Like these are all, entrapments we can't get out of your, you know, or entanglements, entrapments, maybe <laughs> too strong. <laughs> um, that was maybe projecting for some people who need that kind of projection, but, um, right. you know, like it's, it's all, it's there. And yeah, like the, the teenage girl stories, there's a bunch of them that I was basically like, I mean, earlier I was talking about how, like, you know, the way to write something is to try not to write it. Like, um, there's just like, there's a number of those stories where I'm like, Oh God, I'm not writing another teenage girl story. Am I? And, um, and I tried not to. And then like later I would be so annoyed because why should I not write that story? Like, those are good stories. Those are important stories. Those are, um, experiences that a lot of us have had and that are worth examining. Um, and those stories, are often the ones that come out the quickest and like the most fully formed for me and that I understand a lot. And I became 
angry about the fact that I was resisting telling stories that were mine. Like, that's ridiculous. That's like a example of like how freaking deep the patriarchy is embedded in all of us that I was just like, oh, no, I shouldn't tell this story. Um, And I'm really glad that I pushed myself um, past that to tell those stories. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, there's just so much that you, you can keep asking questions about and keep thinking about. And I think it also brings up the idea of like, well, what is a story? What is a book supposed to do? Like, what do we expect it to do um, for the reader? And I think a lot of times there's this long standing tradition of like, well, we want to experience someone else's life. Like we want to go in and, and go into somebody else's head and somebody else's world. But at the same time, the reason it makes it resonant, that it makes it meaningful to us is that we can relate to it. So why shouldn't it be a story that we can relate to even more than, you know, somebody out on some grand adventure or somebody doing something completely different than what we would do, albeit in a human way that maybe we could understand? Yeah. I mean, I, um, it's funny, like I, I write really realistic fiction, um, and, but I like, I love to read not realistic fiction. Like that a lot of my own reading is very different from the stuff that I write. And I just think there's always, and then sometimes in that you find recognition, right? Like there's, there's always something. And I think we never, like the best books don't really, we don't go into looking for something um, or like, or we go in looking for something and then we come out with something entirely different. Um, I, for me, like when I read a really good story or novel or essay, it's just like, there's this kind of shock of recognition, um, that changes, changes something. So it's like, you're not writing to find out something you already know. It's something you didn't realize that you knew if that distinction makes sense. No, it does. I mean, I think that's the point. If we were just going to read something that told us, it's like reading, you know, VCR instructions when you already know how to program the VCR. Like, what's the point? But when you read a book and you're like, okay, I want to, I want to have this experience. And, oh, now I realize something about myself that I didn't realize was there, but it feels really true. And it feels like, I, how could I have not seen that before? I think that's the most satisfying thing to find. Yeah. And it's also like, it's super satisfying for me to like, to hear readers and hopefully this will still remain fun, you know, uh, pick up on things and stories that I didn't even really, I wasn't super conscious of, um, that are there because they're there for them, you know, because so much of writing is like, you write this thing and then you basically give it to a reader and you have no say in how they relate to it. But often there's like a space that they make with the story that, has nothing to do with you, which is so amazing and lovely. Like they're having this experience um, with something that has distance from you. Um, and they're bringing who they are to that. And that's just like between them and the story. And that's like a really, that's been a really cool experience to have. Absolutely. Because you've spent so much time between you and the story, you right. know, creating with that. But as someone reads it, yeah, they bring all of their own associations. And there's a whole new kind of combination happening, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I can bring, I can like, you know, have my own neurotic interaction with the stories that hopefully are not how other people interact with them. Uh, (laughs) They can't see the tears in some of those stories, hopefully. (laughs) Oh, well, maybe they will and it'll feel really reassuring. I I mean, nobody, nobody's hurt by like empathy and, and understanding. And I think the other thing is, you know, as this story 
this collection of stories is coming out in early February. We're coming off the the second Women's March. So I can't think of anything better than to sit down with this collection of stories right after that and to really stay connected to women's experience as people are sort of celebrating that again, which is great. So one last question. So after all of our talk about stories, I do see in your bio that you are working on a novel and I'm wondering how that is going in the uh, in the wake of of what must be an incredible amount of work to get this collection out in the world. Um well, you know, it always depends on the day. Yesterday was was not the greatest day. I did quit a little early and uh actually was reading a friend story collection. I was like, ah, oh, so great. Um, <laughs> which is, which is a good break from work is to read somebody else's work. It's always inspiring. Um, it is, it's going, um, I, one of the kind of ironic things about this book, which I began, um, <laughs> I, so I think I told you, right. So I was working on, on a novel, which has like since died a hundred times and lives in a, in a drawer. And then I started writing these stories on the side as like a sneaky thing. And then when I was writing the stories, I started like sneaky writing, um, this, this novel that I'm now working on. Um, and so that was probably like, my earliest notes are like 2010 or so. Um, and I just, the novel takes place in a, like, not too distant, future to be determined, but, um, the world is not a great place for women. Um, I will say as one of the premises of the novel and like, it's been really strange to work on it these past couple of years as many things I invented are becoming true. Um, so it's, right. it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird time to be working on it. The same time, um, I feel like really excited about working on something that that feels relevant. I mean, I used to think like, oh, you know, nobody's going to want to read a novel that's like, oh, things still suck for women. And people just are, I think are constantly saying like, oh, the world is fine. Like things are getting better, you know, like the arc bends towards justice or whatever. And I think if anything, um, the doom and gloom of this novel has been supported by the past year or so, which also just sucks like I would right it's sort of a mixed bag you're like well I'm glad that this makes it really marketable but I'm also really sad for the larger whole yeah it's like it's not the kind of relevancy I want to be writing into um but it's the you know uh but you know the the other thing that the collection has helped me with the novel is like the novel is also about motherhood and it's about choices that women make um, and it's about remembering, which I, I think is something that shows up a lot in the stories. Um, I always joke that like my default voice is always retrospective. Um, and so like working on the stories also helped, helped me kind of gather that, that central narrative for the novel and see thematically what it's about. So, um, yeah, tomorrow, hopefully it'll be going better. <laughs> was yesterday, but, um, it's, it's poking along and I hope to have something, um, a little more solid over the next couple of months. Um, if I can keep my head in it. Well, we'll think good thoughts for you and um, hope that that happens, but yeah, we all have those days and, um, it'll come back around. Yeah. Sometimes it's like in the course of a day where in the morning, I'm like, why, why am I doing this? And then two hours later, I'm like, I'm a genius, you know? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we'll hope that that day comes back tomorrow. I hope so. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and for talking with us. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.